All right. Well, good morning and happy new year. Yeah, I, it's, uh, yeah, I'm really grateful to be up here, um, being able to deliver the word to you guys on the first day of the new year. So if you haven't met me, my name is Wes. I'm a pastoral assistant here at Red Village Church, or will be in January. And uh, I'm grateful um, that we can yeah, gather here to receive God's word. So uh, I'm going to go ahead uh, and pray, um, and then we'll go ahead and read the word and uh, work into the text. So, um, yeah, let me pray. Lord, we desire to hear your word this morning. We desire to receive, God, what you have for us. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit um, would open our hearts to receive your word and, Father, that you would be glorified with this time. And so please um, speak to us as we gather around. In Christ's name, amen. So if you guys would like to open your Bibles to Haggai 2, um, verses 10 through 19, that's what we'll be working through this morning. So Haggai 2, verses 10 through 19. I'm going to go ahead and read the text, and uh, we'll begin to work through it. So, Haggai 2, verse 10. It says, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to reap of twenty measures, there was but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there was but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord." Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, and the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. So, this is our text. Before I, I begin to, to work through verse by verse, you'll want to just keep your Bibles open. I'm going to give you guys just a little bit of a refresher of where we've been at in Haggai, um, or just what has been going on within the book of Haggai. So um, Haggai is a post-exilic book, uh, meaning that it was uh, written after the exile of Babylon. And God has just allowed his people to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple by the decree of the Persian king Cyrus II. 
After 70 long years of captivity in Babylon, Jeremiah's prophecy is now being fulfilled, and the restoration of Jerusalem and return of God's people has begun. The book of Ezra mentions everyone whose spirit God roused were prepared to go up and rebuild the temple, uh, rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. So God has now found, uh, God's people have now found themselves returning back to the promised land where, uh, of Judah where the, that lies in ruins with the mission of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. The second temple construction began in 536 B.C. under Zerubbabel and Joshua's leadership. Zerubbabel served as a governor alongside the current high priest, Joshua. Initially, the people began rebuilding the temple with excitement and great joy, but after the foundation of the temple was laid, the people began to become discouraged and stopped working on the temple for 16 years. During those 16 years, the people began using resources that were supposed to be used for the temple, and they began to panel their own homes with this material. So the year 520 B.C. did not start out as an encouraging time. The people of God had stopped doing what they were supposed to and were constantly faced with opposition coming from the Samaritan nations residing nearby Jerusalem. But on August 29th, 520 B.C., the remnant of Israel heard the word of the Lord spoken by Haggai the prophet, and the people obeyed the voice of the Lord. They considered their ways and they reoriented their lives to get back to building the Lord's temple. Haggai tells us that the people feared the Lord and that God's Spirit stirred up the people to walk in obedience and to do the work that God had sent them to do. The people of God obeyed the voice of the Lord and followed it up with action in getting back to rebuilding the temple as the Spirit of God led them. Almost one month later, God gave Haggai his second message of encouragement regarding the future glory of the temple that would be greater than the former glory built by the hands of Solomon. God create, continued to emphasize to his people, I am with you, and that there is greater glory to come with a temple that you're currently working on. And so God is again and again encouraging his people through the book of Haggai and through Haggai's messages. The work that was set out before them was significant and it mattered because God's plan for his glory is significant and it matters greatly. Over and over again, we see God encourages people in the book of Haggai by his word and by his spirit after 16 years of emotional and physical discouragement. A month after Haggai's second message to the people, Zechariah began to prophesy by delivering an encouraging message from the Lord as well. So the Lord told his people through Zechariah, return to me and I will return to you. The word return resembles repentance that the Lord desired from his people and is a key theme found in Zechariah's messages. As God's people repented or returned to the Lord, God would return with his blessing on Israel according to his covenant that he declared through Moses in Deuteronomy. Zechariah's message also reminded the remnant of Israel of the sin that their ancestors of the sin of their ancestors who did not listen or pay attention to the Lord and therefore perished because of their sin. 
In response to Zechariah's first message, the people obey the word of the Lord, and they repent, and they return to the Lord. A month after Zechariah's message and the people's repentance, Haggai comes and gives a third message that we'll be looking at much more closely today. So, if you want to look back with me at the text, Haggai gave this message on December 18th, 520 B.C., which um, was a really important time, obviously, because December 18th is one week before Christmas. So, as you can all imagine, this is the week that the Israelites are quickly trying to buy all their last-minute Christmas gifts. There's a bunch of donkey traffic that's going on outside of Woodman's. <laughs> Nobody can get to where they're trying to go. It's just a ridiculous, crazy time back then that doesn't occur anymore. No, I'm just kidding. No Christmas. No, no Christmas was going on during this time. Okay. No Christmas. But December 18th of 520 B.C. It had been almost two months since the last encouraging message that God had spoken through Haggai, and three months since the remnant of Israel started rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. So let's look at the text, and look with me at verses 11 through 13. So here's what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine, or oil, or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. So Haggai's third message is directed towards the Levitical priests that had come, now that had come to Jerusalem out of the exile, out of the first wave of people that had returned. The priests were the descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses, and were held accountable for directing the people in the way of the Lord and carrying out the Levitical duties within the temple according to God's law. It was the priest's job to distinguish between what was clean and what was unclean, what was holy and what was common. They were also responsible for teaching the Israelites all the statues that the Lord had given them through Moses. There was also a high priest who was chosen from among the Levitical priests to act on behalf of Israel, of all of Israel, as an intercessor by gifts and sacrifices for sin. The priests themselves were held to a higher standard of leadership, of teaching, of knowledge of God's law, and of purity. They were set apart for the Lord's service. A priest in Israel had to be in good physical condition and without any physical defects, as well as ceremonially clean and unblemished. The priests needed to remain pure before the Lord in order to intercede for the community's sins by performing their various duties within the temple. This was one of the most important roles in the Israelite community, for it allowed the people to remain in relationship with the Lord through the covenant God had made with his people. If a priest did not remain ceremony pure according to the law, then the sacrifices that they brought would be defiled and unacceptable to the Lord. The consequences for a priest serving while unclean or eating meat offered to the Lord while unclean resulted in the most severe penalty short of execution being cut off from the Lord's presence and cut off from Israelite community 
completely. And the cutoff here is, is meant to be excommunicated from worship in the temple, or it could even mean premature death by the intervention of the Lord. So this was heavy, a heavy weight that was laid upon the priests in remaining pure. The priests better have known what was clean and what was unclean because their life depended on it. A pure offering made by the priests was necessary in order to have communion with a holy God. So Haggai asks an interesting question in verse 12, testing their knowledge about the law. Haggai asks, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of their garment and his garment touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? This question had to have sounded ridiculous to the priests. Of course, consecrated piece of meat set apart for the Lord doesn't make other things holy by contact. That's completely absurd. God's people are holy, and only because the Lord is holy, for God is the source of all that is and becomes holy. Psalm 113 says, The Lord is high above the nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? The priests understood this and answered Haggai correctly by answering him, No, the holy meat that touches other foods does not become holy. Then Haggai asks another question regarding the law. If someone who is unclean by touching a dead body touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become unclean? According to the law, anyone who touches a dead body will be unclean for seven days. And if that person does not purify themselves, they defile the tabernacle of the Lord. The consequence was being cut off from the Lord and from the community of Israel. Once again, the priests answered correctly by telling Haggai that anything touched by a person who is unclean by contact with a dead body becomes unclean. So Haggai's not asking difficult questions here. These were textbook answers coming straight from the law. Um, But I doubt that the priests were prepared for what Haggai told them next. So look with me at verse 14. Haggai answers and says, So it is with this people. And not only with this people, but with this nation. And before me, declares the Lord, so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. The Lord relates the defilement that comes from a dead body and everything it touches to not only the remnant of Israel rebuilding a temple, but to all of the people of Israel and all of their works, all that they do. The Lord even says that every work of their hands is defiled, literally everything that they offer defiled. This revelation from God would not be taken lightly. For the priests, if they became unclean, this meant their entire livelihood was cut off and that their lives were now in danger of facing the wrath of a holy God. So let alone the entire Israelite community being defiled before God. The word unclean or defiled here in the text is the Hebrew word tameh, which means sexually, ceremonially, or religiously impure. But how have the people of Israel become unclean? Like, what did they do? Was there a dead body that they all touched at some point? 
Physically, the people had not touched any dead body recently. Actually, Scripture tells us the remnant of Israel had recently obeyed the word of the Lord and repented of their sins after hearing Zechariah's message only one month earlier. Israel had done something far worse than touch a dead body. They had actively sinned against the Lord day after day after day since the beginning. We see in Scripture how over and over again God's people disobey His commandments and actively sin against Him. And we as sinners, including everyone in here in this room, is guilty of the same thing. So although that God's people had just obeyed the voice of the Lord and received the message from Haggai, that didn't clear them of their past disobedience. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the result is spiritual defilement that cannot be cleansed. The people of Israel had become spiritually contaminated from the death of sin, as if contaminating oneself from a decaying, dead corpse. And we are spiritually contaminated in the same way. Now, everything that the defiled people put their hands to, including the temple of the living God, is contaminated in sin. And this defilement is not going to go away in seven days, like one could do for being physically unclean, according to the law. No, once spiritually defiled, contaminated in sin, there's nothing you can do to become spiritually undefiled. There is no work, no act, no single thing that we as humans can do. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, We have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. We all, meaning all of humanity, fade like a leaf, and our inequities, like the wind, take us away. Now, it is possible that God gave the remnant of Israel this message as a reminder that the righteous works in rebuilding the temple would not make them clean or holy. But the text doesn't make this clear. So, touching the stones of the Lord's temple in order to be made holy would be ridiculous. But understanding that their uncleanliness from contamination of sin was spreading to everything that they were putting their hands to is scriptural. And this reality is true for us as well. As I read in Isaiah, the only result of our sin is to be blown away in the wind like a decaying dead leaf that will take us only to the grave. So what are the priests to do? What are the people of Israel to do? What is the whole nation to do? What are we to do? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 15. Haggai tells the people, from this day forward, stop and consider. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? God tells the people to evaluate how were things going before you began to build the temple. The CSB Bible phrases the question, what state were you in? When it comes to the New Year resolutions, the Israelites had initially set out to rebuild the temple, but it only finished its foundation. And after that, they failed to meet their resolution 16 years in a row. The state of the Israelites' hearts was apathetic towards God's glory and purpose. They had become more fixed on paneling their own homes than with God's glory. 
As a result of their sin and apathy, God brought the curses upon them that he said he would bring to those who disobey, including drought throughout the land, on the grain, the fruit of the vine, the oil, and everything the ground brings forth, as well as everything that their hands tried to produce. Chapter 1 of Haggai even tells us that no matter what the Israelites did during this time, satisfaction continued to be absent in all they did. Life during this time for the remnant of Israel was a grind, where nothing worked out for them and everything seemed to work against them. For the Lord himself was working against them. Haggai gives us more details to what this was like in the 16-year period in verses 16 through 17 of our text by saying that when someone tried to collect grain or wine, they would only receive half or less than half of what they came for. Not only did the crops produce less than half, but God also actively struck all their harvested food with blight, mildew, and hail. This was obviously far from coincidental of just being a bad year for crops. This was clearly the curse of God against his people for their rebellion against him. Deuteronomy 28 says, If you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commandments and statutes that I am giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. The Lord will afflict you with wasting disease, fever, inflammation, burning heat, drought, blight, and mildew. These will pursue you until you perish. Yet even then, our text tells us, the people did not turn to the Lord. This reveals the hard-heartedness of the people ignoring the signs and instead continuing to focus on themselves instead of their God. And the Lord tells them again in the text, from this day on, consider, since the day of the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, is the seed in the barn yet? Even to this day, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate tree, the olive tree have all brought absolutely nothing for you. God tells his people three different times, consider what has been happening from this day forward. For the day that God delivered this message to Haggai was a special turning point for all of Israel. So look with me at verse 16, one of the most crucial parts of this text. It says, from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. Not curse you, not reject you, not cut you off, but from this day on, I will bless you. Like, what? This doesn't make any sense from what we just read about being impure and unclean, separated from God. Like, did Haggai mix up this last sentence for another message? Like, bless God's people? Like, I thought the people were defiled, contaminated in sin, cursed, and all they put their hands to. It seems like God should be saying, and now you've finally blown it, and I will no longer put up with your sinful, selfish, stubborn hearts. Your defilement has brought you death. But that's not what God says. Hosea says this about God, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. 
God is not a man who will quickly act out of anger. Rather, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving inequity and transgression. If you're taking notes, write this down. God has already determined blessing for his people who obey him. I'll say it again. God has already determined blessing for his people who will obey him. Deuteronomy 28 says this, The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commands of the Lord, your God, and walk in his ways. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give you the rain to your land in its season, and bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. This is what God had already declared for his people, despite their failure and defilement in sin. For when God's word came to the remnant of Israel through the prophet Haggai, God's people were stirred by the Spirit of God and obeyed the word of the Lord. When the word of the Lord came by the prophet Zechariah just one month earlier, the remnant of Israel repented and returned to the Lord their God and continued to do the work set out before them. Therefore, the Lord says, from this day on, I will bless you. God tells his people to consider the day three different times in our text because he wants them to understand that on this day, they are transitioning from curses to blessing, from death to life. No longer will grain lack in your barns or fruit from your vines and trees or water be withheld from the land nor will satisfaction and joy be out of your grasp. But from this point on, God in his incredible grace will bless you. Now, this didn't mean that the hardships and the struggle with sin was over for God's people. It, it still meant that there would be another five years before the temple would be finished, another 85 years until the city walls would be finished, and almost 400 years of silence until God's long-awaited Messiah would come. And in the midst of all those years, God's people would continue to sin against the Lord and disobey his commands. And yet again, they would bring upon them the curses of God. But in the midst of their sin, God would not forsake his people or abandon them. He would continue to fulfill his plan in bringing redemption for not only his people, but for the whole world. God was indeed with his people on this great day, encouraging them through the prophet Haggai to keep rebuilding the temple for his glory. For God's gracious blessing was on his people, despite their defilement. Now, with this text, I want to give some specific applications for everyone here. And the first is number one, humbly acknowledge your position before a holy God. God is holy and is judge over all the earth, and he will judge the sin of all mankind, including you and me. Just as Israel was defiled before a holy God, so we are defiled and contaminated by the death of sin. Everything that we have to offer to the Lord is like filthy rags before God. And our just judgment is death, not just physical death, 
but spiritual death. For the wages of sin is death. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. We stand condemned and defiled before a holy God, and we must repent and turn to Jesus, who alone was tempted in every way just like us, yet did not sin. Jesus took our defilement, our uncleanliness, the death of sin, and nailed it upon the cross for his own, upon his own sinless body, that he may take the wages of sin upon himself. And because of this, Jesus died so that we, when by faith believe in him, are not condemned to an eternal death, but rather we are raised in new life as Christ was raised in new life on the third day. The second application I want to point out to you is interacting with things that God has made holy will not make you holy. I'll say that again. Interacting with things that God has made holy will not make you holy. The priests in Haggai's day understood contact with holy meat does not make themselves or other food holy. It is God and God alone who is holy and who is able to make his people holy as he is. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Works are not what saves us, not even holy works. The righteousness of God has been revealed through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I told you that God has determined blessing for his people that obey him. And this is true, but the blessing does not come from our own obedience alone, for it cannot. We have all miserably failed at fully obeying God's word. Rather, it is the obedience of Christ that secures blessing for his people who obey God's word, who, who has obeyed God's word, and, and those, let me say that again, it is the obedience of Christ that secures blessing for his people who obey God's word in receiving Christ as their Lord and Savior and who continues to abide in him. Understanding the state of our sin and defilement should lead us to cry out to God for his salvation for his rescue, and for the blessing in Christ to save us. For by a single offering of the body of Jesus Christ, God has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified by his Holy Spirit that lives within those who believe. Touching the cloak of a priest carrying holy meat cannot make a person clean or sanctified. But touching the cloak of Christ can we see this all throughout the Gospels as Jesus touches the lame, the sick, the unclean, and even the dead. His holiness restores and cleanses everyone he comes in contact with. And Jesus is doing the same thing today for those who place their faith in him by the power of his Holy Spirit. The third and final application that I have for you today from the text for the first day of the new year of 2023 is this. Contemplate the amazing grace of God who has already determined to bless his people in Christ. 
The gospel is the incredible reality that God has already decided to bless those who place their faith in Christ for his faithful obedience. For the Christian, God no longer sees the defilement of our sin, but rather he sees the righteousness of Christ that has washed us white as snow. In the same way, God told his people through Haggai to consider the blessing that was now going to bring that he was going to bring to his people on December 18, 520 BC. So I am telling you today, according to God's holy word, consider the riches of God's glorious grace poured out on you through Christ. Romans 5:20 through 21 says this. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Consider in 2023 that though your sin has made you defiled, God in his abundant grace has blessed you by washing your sins clean through the obedience of Christ. And if you are here today and you have not placed your faith in Christ and you have not received this incredible blessing, understand that it remains available to you now. So repent and believe in Jesus. Believe that he is the Christ and that he is Lord and be reconciled back to God. Whatever goals or resolutions that you have this year, acknowledge that you are sinful and you will fall short often this year. But be of great courage. Like, be extremely encouraged that no matter what this year brings, our God and King is with you. And he will not forsake you. His blessing is with his people because of the work and obedience of Christ. We are always dependent upon the grace of God. So therefore, remain humble this year and all that you put your hands to. Know that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Do the work that God has set out before you this year for his great glory. God is with you, and his word is his encouragement to you. So this year, take hold of God's word and understand that it is his encouragement to you that he is with you and understanding the gospel and what has been purchased for you and his incredible, gracious blessing. Keep working and worship God this year for his glorious grace that has been poured out on you through Christ, for his grace is sufficient for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your glorious grace that is poured out through Christ. And I pray for everybody here, God, and everyone who will hear this message. Lord, may, may we take this to heart. May we be of great courage this year in 2023 that um, you have paid the penalty, God, for our sin.
and that we stand justified and clean because of Christ. And so in the midst of our failures and the midst of our shortcomings, may we remember Christ and may we press on. God, fill us and lead us this year for the glory of your name and for the glory of the gospel. Um, From Madison uh, to the nations, God, and all the earth, that you may be glorified this year. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.